Alrighty, hello again everyone, welcome to it is the Derek Hunter Podcast for the 20th of October 2022. Happy Thursday, I want to get right to it. Just go to patreon.com slash Derek Hunter Podcast, support the show, get bonus content, things like that, or DerekHunter.locals.com. All the good stuff there, extra good stuff, everything. Much appreciated, the support, and you enter to win the contest this week. It's between Megan Kelly and... Nope, actually, Rand Paul and Judge Janine. Signed books by both. There you go. Pitch done. Let's get started. There's a lot going on. Tons of things to get to today. Maybe later. I want to address an email I've gotten. A couple emails, actually. It's not just one person. So I can paraphrase it rather than read it. It's about the uh, trans issue. You're talking about this too much. There's other things going on. Um, It's wildly important. It's wildly important to sit there and try and say, people don't care. People people do care. This has motivated a lot of voters. It's not just why you talk about it, but it is why Virginia has a Republican governor right now. You think Glenn Youngkin was, he, wow, he's just so compelling. The way that he shot those jump shots in his commercials really won people over. It wasn't anything he was talking about. No, It was the ridiculous insanity, the dangerous ideology that the left had been introducing in schools. It wasn't just about gender. It was about critical race theory as well. And as those things come up, we talk about those too. But you can't and shouldn't just go, well, I don't care about this, and therefore it doesn't matter. You want to know why conservatives lose a lot of the time. It's because of that attitude. Now, hear me out. I know a lot of people are going, I hate this, and I'm going to turn this off. Hear me out for a second. Every time I write about pop culture, and I do, I do fairly frequently, I get the messages and emails, and I read the comments too. And even when I talk about it on the show, I get some emails. The people who are proudly, and this isn't an attack on anybody, so I know that some people are going to get their hair up and go, oh, you're attacking. No. I just want to give you food for thought. It's up to you whether or not you eat. But there are uh, people who will message me, comment, whatever, and go, I, I haven't had a TV since 1972. I canceled my cable back in 1993. Okay, well, look, it's fine. If that's how you want to live your life, that's fine. I don't blame you. There's a lot of junk on TV. Most of it isn't worth watching. Or I haven't gone to the movies since the original Jaws came out. Okay, you don't have to go to the movies. I'm not advocating for you to go to the movies. I'm saying you should be aware of what movies are out there. You don't have to like them. You don't have to go see them. You don't have to watch the Oscars. You don't have to really do anything. I'm not asking you to do anything. Except pay attention to what's going on around you. Because while you are sitting there going, I don't care about these sorts of things, and I don't, other people do. And you're the exception, not the rule. And if you want to know what's going on, and if you want to have a chance of winning political battles, pretty damned important political battles, you have to be aware of where the battles are happening, the grounds on which they occur, and the manner in which they occur. That's why you should pay attention to those things. You don't have to go, you don't have to patronize, you don't have to do anything, but you should be aware of these. You don't have to go to a drag brunch or a drag queen kids book reading 
You don't have, in fact, I'd recommend you not go to it. It'd just not be good. But you should be aware that they're going on. And you should be aware that they're going on as frequently as they're going on. And you should be aware that they're going on in places where they are going on. They're not just happening in Manhattan. It's not just that these books that are very, very explicit about uh, sex, gay sex, are in existence. Who cares? If it's just a book in a a bookstore, who gives a damn? You're not going to accidentally buy it, and if you do, that's on you. It's that they are in elementary school libraries. And it's not just that they exist, it's that they are in elementary school libraries, and there's more to it than just indoctrinating children. It is also perpetuating the industry, the grooming industry. Oh, I can't use that word. I just did and I will. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, if you get into, li- if you're, it's not easy to get a book into a library, to all libraries or many libraries. There are, what, tens of thousands of schools across the country. They all have libraries to one degree or another or should or at least used to vast majority of them do. Then there are towns and cities and whatever that have their own libraries. If you get into the libraries, your book's sold. You write something really weird that think there's no human being who wants to buy this. And there probably aren't very many human beings who want to buy a how-to guide for underage gay sex. There probably aren't very many people, thank God, who want to buy that outside of the library industry. But that the library industry wants to buy it, big library, big book, that the left controls that, it helps use tax dollar money, or it uses tax dollar money, to perpetuate it. You do a a gender queer that probably sells, I don't know, mm, a thousand copies to the general public, maybe, maybe, And there's not going to be a whole bunch of publishers, because they are ultimately a business. There aren't going to be a whole lot of publishers who go, well, you know what? We need to find the next genderqueer. What we really need to do is find a book that only sells 1,000 copies. Trust me, the publishing industry is lousy with books that sell 1,000 copies or less. But if that book gets into 10,000 libraries across the country because it is deemed, quote-unquote, important because of the subject matter or whatever, by the... uh, library people by the left, really. Well, then suddenly, publishers are going, we need to find more of the next gender queer. It becomes a self-fulfilling industry. It becomes a snowball effect. You have people, publishers, going, well, let's publish another one. Let's publish another one. And you can't, as a consumer, go, you know what? If we just don't buy this, it'll go away. Because you don't have the say. The public isn't buying it. It is, well, it's you buying it with your tax dollars, honestly. That's how the left perpetuates itself, through government subsidies, through government. And look, books have to be purchased. It's not like publishers go, here, every library in the country, here's a copy of this book. We want you to have it. Now, they don't pay cover price or anything like that, but they make enough money. The publishers aren't going, you can buy it at cost. No, They're making money off of it. Not a ton, not a few money, but money off of it. Considering what it costs to publish a book versus what a book sells for wholesale, costs 
a couple of dollars to publish a book. And they sell them wholesale, say a $30 book, they sell them wholesale for about 14 bucks. Well, if it costs even $4 to publish it, and you sell it for $14, you're getting 10 bucks a piece. Now, if you're going to cut the library a deal and say, we'll sell it to you wholesale as well, you're still making, what, 10 bucks a piece off of those books. That's a pretty sweetheart deal, isn't it? Even if you have to give the author a little bit of a taste of that action, you're looking at, uh, I'll give you five bucks and we'll give us five bucks. You're still getting five bucks profit. So then they go, well, we can keep publishing these sorts of books. The left-wing librarians will purchase them. The library associations across the country will say, this is an important book that you have to have. And suddenly, what do you do? You get more books like that. You get more books like that. People think that these books are written in, and there's so many. I went to, I actually went to the library. It's a while ago now. It was probably a couple months ago. And while the wife was looking up books for the kids, I was looking up what books they were highlighting. And I don't know what percent, I would put it somewhere in the neighborhood of 70% of them for the kids, for the young adult books. I'm scrolling through my pictures to see if I can find this. I doubt I'll be able to find it because it was, it wasn't all that long ago time-wise, but it was 10 trillion pictures ago. But um, 90, 70 to 90% of the books highlighted in the young, I didn't scroll through all of, or I didn't leaf through all of them. Of the books in the young adult section, we're all some sort of, uh, we're all gay and everybody loves everybody and we have two and three and four and five mommies and things like that. And you're sitting there and you're going, what, is there really this big of a market for this? And there really isn't that big of a market for it. There isn't a whole bunch of people going, what I really want is another book about uh, how to learn to accept somebody for being homosexual. It's that there is a market for it in the sense that there will always be librarians who deem them important. There will be politicians who deem them important. And so they will make a profit. And so they go, all right, well, let's do another one. Let us get another one. We need more, we need more, we need more. So you have to be aware of this if you're ever going to combat it. You have to be aware of these things if you're ever going to stand up for it. You need to know what's going on in your neighborhood, in the culture, even if you're not an active participant in it, because other people are. Now, oh, here we go. I found it, actually. These are the books that were highlighted in our local, it's a small town, rural Maryland, in the library. I don't know if there's a date on these things. Back in August. Okay. The Lesbianas. Yeah, the les or Lesbianas. Yes, it's Lesbianas, apostrophe S. Guide to Catholic School. The Lesbianist Guide to Catholic School. Now, across the back, it says, uh, full of heart humor and swoon-worthy romance. The Lesbianist Guide to Catholic School is the recovering Catholic school students' road to healing. This is a must-read for queer teens growing into their own. Quote from Emery Lee, author of The Meet Cute Diary, whatever the hell that is. Another one. There's blurbs on the back of the book. With the with off the chart 
Hearts, uh, Heart and Humor, The Lesbiana's Guide to Catholic School, is an immediate favorite. Sonora's voice is one to watch. That's the author. The author, what the hell's the author's name? Sonora Ray, Reyes. That's Julie Murphy, number one, New York Times bestselling author of Dumplin'. I don't know what the hell that is. Quote, The Lesbiana's Guide to Catholic School is a story about discovering what makes you feel most at home within yourself and the comfort that comes with sharing those parts with the people you love, even when it's scary. This book is warm, a warm protective hug for teens who are frightened to be seen as themselves in a world that wants them to hide. Yes, if you think about lesbianism and gay culture and this culture just desperately wants you to be to hide doesn't it there's no celebration of of homosexuality in our culture today is there none whatsoever my god they'll hunt you to the ends of the earth oh yeah no that's none of that's true that's a quote from aiden thomas new york times best-selling author of the cemetery boys there's two more quotes here it doesn't really matter what they are you get the idea for the lesbianist guide to catholic school then there's this beauty. Now, all of these have like cartoonish covers. They, they color them and draw them. This one is A Little Bit Country. You're like, huh, A Little Bit Country by somebody called Brian D. Kennedy. And there's two dudes. One's wearing a tasseled shirt and he's got a guitar and he's got cowboy boots. And the other one's wearing a baseball hat and a white T-shirt and jeans. And, you're like, and they're in front of an amusement park. Like, oh, what is this about? Is this about making it in the country music? No, 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 no. Equal parts emotional, earnest, and entertaining. A little bit country made my heart sing from the very first line. Jennifer Dugan, author of Hot Dog Girl and Some Girls Do. With sweet original lyrics, a heaping serving of comfort food, and a heart-stopping aches of fluttering of first love, a little bit country is a glittering love song debut by, that's Aaron Hahn. It is about... A man, a boy, because there's a picture right there on the side. You know how you go into the uh, photo booth at the boardwalk or whatever, and you get the four pictures? There's those same two dudes, those two rough and gruff country, except for the guy with the tassel shirt. That's not going to ever be rough and gruff. There they are in the pictures. Oh, they got their arms. Oh, now they're making out. By the third photo, they're full-blown making out. Like, huh, that's... So that's what this book is about. That's why this book was written. That's why the publisher bought this book. You think there's a big market, a little bit country. Oh, that's, that's a huge market for people wanting to hear about making it in country music. No, not making it like that in country music. Holy cow. It is perpetual. There's all sorts of things. Hatred of the country. The left is obsessed with our worst moments. Imagine being a leftist. Imagine being around a leftist, actually, is more like it. A really committed leftist. The way they treat this country. They, what do they do? They focus on your worst moments. And then they bastardize those worst moments, by the way. Internment. There was an article about internment the other day of Japanese Americans that made one casual mention of FDR. Like he wasn't even in town that month. Like He did it. A Democrat did it. There's a book, one of the books highlighted, Days of Infamy, how a century of bigotry led to Japanese-American internment by somebody called Lawrence Goldstone. 
I don't know. It doesn't sound like a particularly Asian name, but you know, there's money to be made in it. And it, that was one of the books highlighting, oh, it's this important read for young adults. Is it really an important read for young adults? This country sucks, and it sucked for a long time. It's going to suck for a lot longer. Here's a comic book about how this country sucks. Oh, a comic book. This would be nice escapism. There's no escaping. The left will not let you go. So you don't have to like the culture. You don't have to participate in the culture. Hell, I don't blame you for not wanting to participate in the culture, but you damn well better be aware of the culture because the culture is well aware of you and it's winning. So another book that was popular at the uh, local library, and this is a small library. The library well, it's a little bit bigger than my apartment was in Baltimore. Maybe. That basement apartment in the row house was pretty big. Wasn't much bigger anyway than a one-bedroom apartment. So you'd think space would be important, fought over. And it is. But uh, it's all leftist crap, honestly. I went and tried to look. I looked in the uh, current events things or the, uh, the politics. There's not a whole lot of conservative books in there in the library. It's not. That's a small town. The bigger library for the county probably has more books or a bigger city's library would probably have more books. But I'm just telling you, the attitude, the ideology is the same regardless. Another book that's highlighted to just push leftism, Girls Who Green the World. Girls Who Green the World. What's that? It's written by Diana Capp, K-A-P-P, and illustrated by Anna Yarin. Now, these are mostly, uh, they're not comic books, but there's a lot of illustration, a lot of drawing. A lot of, it's for kids. These are for kids. These are the, this is the kids section. And these are the ones that were set up to highlight this month's young adult. This is uh, young adult graphic novels for 2022. That was the section I was looking at. It was a wall of all of them out there. And you sit there and you go, well, who, what, what's going on? It's featuring the success stories and lessons learned along the way of 34 revolutionary women whose titles range from activist to entrepreneur with actionable tips, colorful illustrations, informative Q&As, and more. This is a collection and a must-read for anyone interested in fighting for our future because there is no planet B. Indoctrination. Straight-up indoctrination. And then there's uh, the drawings of Saba Gray. I don't know what the hell, who names their kids Saba? S-A-B-A Gray. She's co-founder of BioGlitz. Yeah, it's important. you got to know that. Then there is uh, Varshini Parkash. Parkash, P-A-R-K-A-S-H. Co-founder of the Sunrise Movement. And there she is. She's got the Green New Deal. This is a drawing. So you could literally put her in any outfit you wanted. And she's wearing a Green New Deal t-shirt with her fist raised in the air. That's black power. Although I think she's Indian. And then there's Rihanna Gunn-Wright. Architect of the Green New Deal. And you see, wait a second, this is, a, this is Democratic Party propaganda. Goebbels is looking up from hell going, wow, these guys have achieved something I never even envisioned. I never would have thought to go this far. 
And, of course, they have the ubiquitous quote on the back. The one quote is, Girls who green the world show how brave girls who pay attention have launched ideas and organizations that may very well save us all. Who said that? Who provided the Why, well, it's Jane Fonda, after all. Hanoi Jane. Good old Hanoi Jane. Yes, the left works like the hive mind. They work collectively. They're not stupid. There's nobody out there just kind of doing their own thing. Everything has a purpose. That book would sell four copies, and it would be to the family members of the author and the illustrator. But that book probably sold 20,000 copies because they put it in every library in the country. You put it in every library in the country, and then what? A bunch of parents see it, kids sign it out, teachers push kids towards it, and then parents go, oh, the liberal parents go, oh, you know, you really love that book, Girls Who Green the World. Let's get you your own copy. That's how it works. People find out about it. Like, oh, I love this book. I'm going to buy it. And then you get even more sales. And then the publishers go, we need to do this and we need to do that. And then they say, well, conservative children's books just don't sell. Well, the conservative children's books just don't sell because the culture embraces leftism. The culture embraces is, is run by leftists down to the library level. It's not just the big muckety-mucks making movies out in Hollywood. It is the people who buy books for libraries and everything in between. Make no mistake, it all matters. This might actually matter more. Because the odds of your kid coming into contact with some movie, like watching Bros or something, it's probably pretty slim, right? Nobody went and saw Bros. But your kid's school will take them to the library pretty regularly. The teacher, if the teacher wants to draw attention to this, it's pretty powerful. The teacher, most people, most kids have respect for their teachers, have reverence for their teachers. So they'll go, all right, well, if, if Mr. Johnson says that Girls Who Green the World is a book that's important to me, I should read it. I will get it. Or this one. This is lovely. The pronoun. This is another young adult. Now, this isn't. This was in the kids section. This wasn't in the young adult section. This was in the little kids section. Lest you think that uh, the left is not embracing the cigarette company model of hooking them while they're young. This is called the pronoun book. Yeah, what do you think that's about? It's by Chris Ayala Kronos. There's always seems to be somebody with a hyphenated name involved in these things, and. Melita Triado. <laughs> how do you know how to ask someone? How, how do you know someone uh, wants to be what someone wants to be called? How do you know what someone wants to be called? Ask. That's written right across the back. The joyous introduction to people and their pronouns. And there's a drawing of a bunch of multicultural cartoon characters, none of which are white, by the way. Who all have big badges. Where's the ubiquitous person in a wheelchair? There's the, all the appropriate hair and head garb. And it's, uh, oh, there's the pronouns. And what are the pronouns? He, she, the girl in the wheelchair, her pronouns are, or no, sorry, he, z. He and s, i, e. Then there's the Asian boy. His pronoun is she. And there's the elderly woman with. Is that a mustache or just a age line? I don't know. She is a she on her. And then there's another woman has he. 
there's uh, some sort of in-between creature with he and they, and then another one with Z and Zay, and then there's a young young Hispanic-looking girl drawing with a cochlear implant. Why they have a cochlear implant? Why they like got to do that? I don't know. I guess they got to. That's just how the left works. And those pronouns are. I never even heard of any of these. A E Y and Co C O. <laughs> and the book has a dedication right there on the back. For Iris, me, Ericos, I don't know what that is in Spanish. And there's a nice little rainbow, and that is the hyphenated author. And then it says, the other one is from the other author. It says, to my partner, Alex, who I love to laugh with. Yeah. This is the world that the left is creating. And lastly, good night stories for rebel girls. Volume 2. Well, why? Because Volume 1 was such a smash hit. Don't you know everybody's got a copy of Volume 1? It was the biggest seller. No. No, it was. It sold to libraries. Volume 1. You put a book titled all the good night stories for rebel girls, and the left has done what? They have convinced you, or tried to convince you, they've tried to convince society that what? Girls are beaten down. Girls are oppressed. Girls are put upon. Society is, we have to put a special emphasis on girls. We need to get girls into the stems of the, sty- the science, technology, math, blah, blah, blah. Oh, we need engineering and math. We need to get them all in there. It's ho- Never mind the fact that a majority of people in school and colleges, particularly in the STEM fields, are girls. Forget that. Never mind that. Just a wildly inconvenient fact that the left completely ignores. They still pretend that if you are a woman, you're never going to succeed in this country and the government and the society is out to get you. So you write a book about good night stories for rebel girls. Like, oh, ooh, that's awesome. Rebel girl. That's what we need is girls who are rebels. Meanwhile, boys are falling to the wayside. Everything's going to hell with boys. Doesn't matter. So who are these? some of these? Well, one of these rebel girls is what some of them, Oprah, Beyonce, your typical things, Audrey Hepburn, Georgia O'Keeffe, blah, Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein. And then there's Rachel Carson. Rachel Carson, right there, her name's listed as one of these rebel girls you need to know about. Rachel Carson wrote Silent Spring. Rachel Carson is the reason that... Uh, I don't know, tens of millions of people have died of malaria over the last 50 years. Yeah, really just how it is. <laughs> because, what is it? Uh, Ray, let me look this up just to make sure I've got the right book. Because she is, um, yeah, Silent Spring. She's quite the um, mass murderer, honestly. <laughs> Not directly, she didn't kill people. But it was a uh, a push to get rid of DDT. DDT is a chemical that kills mosquitoes. It was used to kill mosquitoes. Malaria is spread by mosquitoes. DDT is relatively harmless. It used to be sprayed over cities while people were out from airplanes. Why? To kill mosquitoes over swampy areas mostly. 
because that's where mosquitoes breed. That helped stamp out malaria deaths. It was sprayed all over the planet, actually. And then Rachel Carson decided that it was uh, the worst pesticide in the world. Back in 1962, she wrote a book called Silent Spring about the dangers of DDT. Now, if you just had a glass of DDT for breakfast every morning, the odds are your body wouldn't do too well with it. Probably wouldn't do too well with it. But uh, And you'd get cancer. They found that if you took massive doses of it and administered it to rats in massive quantities that you'd really have to swim in DDT every day for it to get, that you had a high probability of developing cancer. And so the hyperventilating environmentalist movement, the left in general, who doesn't like the population of the earth, at least the human population of the earth, ran and clutched their pearls and said, oh my God, DDT, it's a killer. We've got to get rid of it. And they banned DDT. They managed to ban DDT, not just in the United States. So every time you're sitting there having a picnic and you're going, guys, damn mosquitoes, you can thank Rachel Carson, you can thank the left. They also got it banned around the world. Well, it was incredibly useful in Africa where malaria is prevalent. Malaria deaths went way up. Cancer deaths didn't go way down because there really weren't a whole lot of cancer deaths. But uh, malaria deaths went way up. Rachel Carson is heralded as a hero to the left because, oh, she's such an environmentalist. She managed to get rid of this horrible, horrible poison that is really only poison if you're a mosquito or you drink it every day. And she's still loved by the left today. Now, we have the solution for saving tens of millions of lives with from malaria. It is DDT. It is killing the mosquitoes. It is killing the pest, the parasite bug, that carries malaria from person to person. Not allowed to use it. Instead, what's the solution the left offers? It's uh, mosquito nets. Well, that's great. You can sleep under a mosquito net. Oh, wonderful. You will be mostly protected, eh, for the most part, from mosquito bites while you sleep. While you're awake, not so much. But while you're sleeping, you'll probably be protected from it. And this woman is now heralded as why she's a rebel woman, a rebel girl that every girl needs to idolize and pay attention to. Which, by the way, you know, the whole thing, it did help the left. It did help the Clintons. The Clinton Foundation, the Clinton Global Initiative, whichever one of their scam charities, they got, they got $10 million from the Saudi Arabians, if you remember, to buy mosquito nets for sub-Saharan Africa. Why that $10 million had to be funneled through a charity located in New York rather than the Saudis simply going to the Saudi version of Amazon and ordering $10 million worth of mosquito nets and shipping them to sub-Saharan Africa, which ain't that far away, it will forever be one of those mysteries of life. Unless, of course, you recognize that they were simply trying to buy influence with the Clintons at a time when it was very likely that Hillary Clinton was going to be running for president and probably win. So you see the entirety of the left works hand in glove with one another. None of it is by accident. Nobody is doing anything haphazardly. So you don't have to be aware of popular culture if you don't want to. But it is aware of you. And even if you don't participate in it, you're losing to it. You don't have to participate, but you should be aware of it.
Now I want to shift gears to our government. We are two and a half weeks, almost a little shy of three weeks away from a midterm election. You are going to start hearing all sorts of things in the news that may excite you, that may upset you. It doesn't matter. It's going to be all over the map. Why? Uh, Well, for the past six months, you've been getting about a poll a week, maybe a poll every couple of weeks, depending on how far back you go. From here on out, you're going to be getting polls every day. Tracking polls, every single day, tracking polls. Or it's not just going to be one organization's tracking poll constantly every single day. It's going to be every organization's tracking polls or every organization's just regular polls. They're going to be polling the hell out of everybody. Things to look for. Look for likely voter polls. They are much more reliable. Not that they're all that reliable. But they're more reliable than registered voter polls. If you look, and I saw this this morning on social media, the Democrats at MSNBC are touting various polls, one poll over another poll. It shows that Joe Biden's approval rating is at 46% and his disapproval rating is at 52%. That's quite a change from where it was just a few months ago, just a few weeks ago even. Now, what changed? Nothing changed. The sampling changed. It was of registered voters. Being a registered voter is irrelevant when it comes to electoral politics. Who the hell cares? You're a registered voter. 50% of registered voters don't bother to show up, no matter how easy you make it to vote. So that's, they're irrelevant, quite frankly, their thoughts on the matter. When there was another poll released today above uh, likely voters, Joe Biden's approval rating was only 42%. Now, that's still an approval, an improvement over the, what was it, the 36%, I think, was his low. So it's nothing to sniff at. There has been a bump in things. As things get more real, things get more real. Things People pay more attention. So I would expect many times for Joe Biden's approval rating to go up. People are thinking, how should I vote? What should I vote? What should I do? And so they're paying attention. But if you're not a likely voter, if you're not going to vote for sure, then what is the point? Why would anybody bother caring about what you think or what have you? Well, you shouldn't. So you've got this this difference out there as they're scrambling. Meanwhile, the left is pretty committed to their lie. Nancy Pelosi was on TV yesterday, as a matter of fact. It is amazing. I mean, she she just doesn't care anymore. Nancy's got one foot and three toes out the door. One foot in the grave at her age, but the other three toes are out the door. She's done. If she's a person of her word, and there's a good reason to believe that she wouldn't, she's not necessarily a person of her word and want to retire, but she recognizes that she's not going to get the speakership if Democrats... Democrats don't want her as leader. Democrats are going to lose the House, and Democrats don't want her as leader anymore because she's too old, she's out of touch, and as far left as she is for the new Democratic Party, she's not far left enough. But she would still love to not be known as the person who lost the House of Representatives twice. That's what's really at stake for Nancy Pelosi, her legacy here. She lost 
the House of Representatives in 2010. And she's going to lose it again, hopefully, knock wood, in 2022. I don't know of any other Speaker of the House who has lost the House majority twice. So she's on TV and she's blowing smoke about Joe Biden's first year as president. You want to hear some world-class Olympic gold medals-esque BS, golden BS. Listen to Nancy Pelosi here talk about Joe Biden's first two years. But in some cases, there's no substitute for experience. And I think that what we have been through with the legislation under the leadership of President Biden, who has done a spectacular job, he's had a better two years than most uh, presidents that you can name, certainly in the recent generations. (laughs) Yeah, it's a smashing success. What with the recession, the return of inflation, the last president to deal with inflation was Ronald Reagan, and he was dealing with the inflation he inherited from Jimmy Carter, and he crushed it inside of like four years. He'd crushed the inflation. Ever since then, there are people out there who've never lived with inflation, never had to deal with inflation. I never had to deal with inflation. I knew what inflation was, but I never experienced inflation before. Joe Biden brought that back. It's a whole world of experience. I didn't get to, you know, I wasn't cognizant and aware of the Carter administration. So now I'm grateful that I've been able to experience the Carter administration part two. No, nobody's out there saying that. There are people their whole lives, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump. Inflation was 2 3%, 1%. It just wasn't there. And now, thanks to this clown, it's 8 9%. And he's out there trying to tell you, no, it's not really. It's actually zero percent. Zero percent. There's no, yeah, no, there's no inflation. If you just measure it, you just look at it from this point of view, then there's no inflation. All right, you're going to try to convince me that I don't know how good I've got it. That's a, that's a hell of a strategy. That's a bold strategy there, Cotton. Knock yourself out. But it doesn't work. You need to look at the big picture. When the, the side is... When one side is arguing, only look at the small picture. It's because the real picture, the big picture, does them no favors. You know, the big, the famous foot from Monty Python, you know, the <laughs> foot that comes down and sm- is from, I, don't, I forget what painting it is, a very famous painting. But it's just one tiny bit of, I think it's a little cherub foot from uh, like a 13th century religious painting of of Jesus or Mary or something. I can't remember. But it's just that you have no idea where that foot's from. What is that foot of? Because you only see that part of it. You just think of it as the Monty Python foot. It's not the Monty. It is the Monty Python foot, but it's more than that. A lot more than that. Biden, Democrats, Pelosi, they just want you to look at that little foot, that Monty Python foot. Forget that there's a a whole bigger picture out there. Well, month over month, inflation is next to nothing. Well, we don't live month over month. We don't live month over month. Karen Jean-Pierre, as a matter of fact, she's so historic. You want to talk about unit of measure being everything. Listen to this clip from Karen Jean-Pierre yesterday at the White House press briefing talking about Again, trying to convince you how good you've got it. You don't know how good you've got it, how much money you're saving at the pump. Honest to God, you're saving money at the pump, according to these people. Well, it all depends on how you look at it. 
Every month, the typical two-driver family saves about $120 at the pump compared to where we were in mid-June. Everyday Americans, uh, Americans save about $420 million at the pump compared to uh, mid-June. Compared to mid-June, you got it so good. You're just saving money left and right. If you go to mid-June, you go to the worst, the highest gas prices right there, and then you compare it to that, quit complaining. But what about the start of the Biden administration? What about when Joe Biden's policies started to have an impact? Well, you're paying $2 more a gallon for that. But don't look at it in those terms. Well, why not? Because those terms aren't favorable to Democrats. Oh, all right. Well, there you go. These people are scamming. These people are lying to you. Uh, she had, had the best two years, huh, Nancy Pelosi? You've been around for 80 plus years. Uh, these are not the best two years. Unless, of course, well... She got richer. Maybe that's what she meant. She got a hell of a lot richer. So while Joe Biden is out there trying to convince people and his his party people, oh, you don't know how good you got it. You don't know how you think you got it bad. Shut up. You've got it good. It's a hell of an argument when people are paying 40% more for groceries, 45% more for gas or whatever it is. When you got record inflation, 40-year record inflation. Boy, that Joe Biden, he's historic, isn't he? So very historic. So um, he's been doing all he can. And oh, by the way, to the extent that gas prices are where they are, I can't say low, but the extent that gas prices are where they are, it is artificial by and large because the president has drained about 35, 40% of the strategic petroleum reserve. He's flooded the market. They says, oh, you got, uh, here's more gas. Where, there we go, there we go. Okay, it's come down a little bit. As you heard uh, the historic Corinne Jean-Pierre, you're paying less than you were in June. Yeah, the June, when it was five bucks a gallon. Congratulations. Congratulations. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm punching you less than I did in June. Well, in June, you punched me every day. Now you're only punching me every other day. I kind of would prefer a world where I'm not being punched. But, uh, you know, you're going to expect me to celebrate that you're punching me only every other day? I don't I don't think so. You're being robbed. Somebody's breaking into your house, but they're only breaking into your house once a week. They used to break into your house three times a week. So progress, I suppose. But I'd prefer a world where nobody's breaking into my house. I don't want to have to shoot people breaking into my house. Well, the uh, Biden administration doesn't play that way. They don't work that way. They are, they have, uh, by the way, the president, his original plan for the Strategic Petroleum Reserve was to release 1 million barrels a day for 180 days. He was hoping that that would drop oil price. He's ignorant. Every time a president has released oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, it has had a nominal at most impact on the price of oil. It's about production. It's not about dumping what is already produced. But uh, they they ran through that 180 million barrels or even more, actually, and they'd stopped. Why? Because the Pentagon was warning that, hey, you're dangerously low here in the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. There does come a point where you're endangering national security. We're well past that point, by the way. It exists, it's called the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, not the Political Petroleum Reserve. It's not behind glasses, break glass, if politicians' poll numbers are doing very well. So you got a problem there. 
sooner or later it runs dry or it runs really low and the military is complaining and then our enemies go, the United States is susceptible, right? That's, that's how it works. Well, it didn't work to lower gas prices. So they're going back to the well. Why? Not because it works, not because it worked, not because they think this time it will work. It's because the alternative is to really, really start approving more more leases to drill. The alternative is to really, really allow production increases. Now, they call for production increases, but production increases from what we're already getting from. They're, they're producing what they can produce. They might be able to turn it up to 11 in some places, but it's not going to make that big of a difference. You let them start doing things, especially since the oil markets are uh, based off of futures. The prices are off the futures market, but what it's going to cost in the future. So if you, it's not more oil produced tomorrow that, hey, well, there'll be an extra million barrels tomorrow. Eh, that's not really the same as we're going to up production by uh, 10 million barrels a day over the next five years. You want to see oil prices drop, that would do it. So telling people to open the spigot a little more that's already pretty much opened as wide as it can get isn't going to have the same impact as, say, hey, we're going to build a pipeline to move things through around so it can get the crude to refineries, and we're going to drill in Anwar. We're going to allow more drilling in other places. No. That's not what the Biden administration is doing because that's not what their base wants. That's not what, actually, that's not what their base would allow. Their base will not allow that. But they're going to try and put a bandaid on a bullet wound. Like I say, they're trying to limp their way through the election. Everything Democrats are doing now and have done for the last six months at least is about propping up their brand before the election. That's it. The student loan forgiveness thing is about propping up. Maybe people will get excited to go out and vote for Joe Biden. They are arguing that it is absolutely well within the power of the president of the United States to do this, blah, blah, blah. The constitutional question about that. They don't care. They are hoping that there will not be an, well, they kind of hope there will be an injunction before the election because then they can say, look at what Republicans are trying to deny you. Republicans are trying to deny you this benefit that you deserve. But in general, after the election, they're not going to give a single damn. They didn't give a damn before the election. Why would they care afterwards? It is a tool. It is a prop. So this this guy is named Amos Hochstein, Hochstein, H-O-C-H-S-T-E-I-N. He is an, an energy advisor to the President of the United States, appearing, I believe it was on CNN, talking about, yeah, it was CNN, talking about the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and lowering gas prices while replenishing the Strategic Petroleum Reserve because it does need to be replenished. See if you can make sense of this. I'm trying to figure out is what would make it necessary. Is it gas rising? above four dollars a gallon is it um oil prices rising above 120 dollars i mean what what can you tell us there well you make a good point it's a it's a combination of things of when we if there are uh international uh actions that are taken 
that cause a spike in, price, in oil prices, which translate into gasoline and diesel and heating oil prices right away. Uh, that's what we're trying to stave off, and that's, that will be the metric. I can't, I can't tell you okay. hypothetically what's going to happen, but I think that most importantly what we want to see happen, the president is announcing more than just a release from SPR today. The president's also going to be announcing that we are going to uh, replenish the SPR. We're going to buy back the oil that we sold at about $100 and buy back when prices go down to about $70. And that's critical because that's what the industry in the United States needs to know to, in order to invest today in increasing production. So yeah. we want to see as companies actually increasing production but when today. Will that... <laughs> We're going to buy it back cheaper. What? Yeah, we're we're gonna announce that we're gonna buy it uh, back cheaper. Well, you're gonna buy it back cheaper. We're gonna buy it at seventy dollars a barrel right now, as of this particular moment. Let's see if I can. Figure. It's about eighty-seven dollars a barrel. It fluctuates, not a whole bunch, but it fluctuates. It's been above $70 a barrel for a very long time. It's been up above $100 a barrel. And you're sitting there going, we're, we're announcing today we're going to buy it back at $70. Well, who the hell's going to sell it to you at $70 a barrel? That's, the, that's how markets work. Hey, uh, I'll give you $70 a barrel for that. Uh, no, I... Uh, all right, well, anybody else? I'll give you $90 a barrel for it. All right, well, I'm going to go with $90. But, but I'm, I'm offering you $70. I fully understand what you're offering me. Um, <laughs> I'm just not going to take it. I, I I I collect vintage baseball cards, right? And uh, you know, you look at them, and some of them are just way too expensive. That like uh, dream cards, the '52 tops, Mickey Mantles, tens of thousands of dollars. If you ripped it in half. A Hank Aaron rookie who costs you several thousand dollars. And like, you go up, oh, how much you want for that card? I want uh, $10,000 for that card. Yeah, okay, I'll give you, uh, I'll give you 75 bucks for it. No, I'm not interested. Oh, 75 bucks, take it or leave it. I'm going to leave it. You should really take that $75. Look, think about the stability. You can either have $75 in your pocket or a card you think you can get thousands of dollars for. But that's you can't eat that card. You can't go to the grocery store and pay for that. I suppose, theoretically, if the dealer only had that one card and their entire financial future was locked up in that one card and the mortgage was due and dinner was due and the kids are crying, and everything, you might be able to hold them over a barrel and go, hey, you know what? Starve to death. I don't care. I'll buy the uh, card off of your widow or I'll buy it at your estate sale or something like that. Uh, you could. But it's unlikely that that person exists where everything is tied up into one single baseball card and you're not going to get that deal because even if it was a $10,000 card and they said, all right, fine, I'll sell it for $9,000. Somebody's going to come in and go, well, I'll sell it for, I'll take it for $9,000. I'll make $1,000 right over. I don't, you know, I have to wait a couple of months to sell it to get my $1,000, but that's a pretty good return on investment. Oil companies are not going to go, all right, well, well, we'll take it in the rear. Go ahead. We'll take it right in the wallet. We'll sell you oil at a deep discount. It's not. Now, he has an argument that he tries to make. The guy at CNN doesn't seem to understand how markets work. So he kind of lets it slide. Plus, maybe I think the guy, John Brennan, was a little bit confused. And they're like, 
what the hell are you talking about? Because Amos was not done trying to make the argument that we can buy back oil to replenish the... He's trying to make an argument that's absurd on its face. Hey, this Joe Biden is going to make a profit on this strategic petroleum reserve thing. We sold that oil for $100 a barrel, and we're going to replenish it for $70 a barrel. Well, it's $86, $87 a barrel right now. You'd, you'd still be making $13 a barrel per you know the 180 barrels that we already said why don't you buy now well because we need to keep draining it in order to prop up democrats in order to prop up democrats once once the government of the united states goes from releasing the strategic petroleum reserve to buying newly drilled newly uh what a drilled whatever however you call it, uh barrels of oil that were just sucked out of the ground once you get that the price of oil is going to go up because we're going to have to buy a whole hell of a lot of it. So say it's $70. Well, once the U.S. starts buying it, demand will spike. When demand spikes, but there isn't a uh, also a corresponding increase in supply, what happens to price? Price goes up. Simple econ 101. This guy doesn't seem to understand that. He thinks, well, it costs less than $70. You'll still make a profit at $70 a barrel uh, there because if it gets too low, then it's not worth pulling out of the ground in the United States because it costs more to pull out of the ground than you can sell it for. But he thinks that if you just go, well, it only costs you $60. You'll be making $10 a barrel if you sell it to us for 70 So we promise we're going to buy it for 70 and you got an option to sell it for a hundred. Who the hell wouldn't sell it for a hundred? These people seem wildly ignorant about everything that goes on in economics. Listen to this guy. When will that happen? I mean, you say sixty-seven to seventy-two dollars a barrel is the target. What yeah. if it doesn't get to that point? I mean, this is not a bottomless pit for the strategic petroleum reserve. What if prices don't go there in the next six months and you keep drawing down? So what we're asking the industry to do is not wait till prices go there. We're asking the industry today, tomorrow to start increasing production, to tr start investing. Look, they've made enormous amount of profits, which we're not against profits, but they've made a lot of profits over the last several years, several months. And what we're asking for is that they increase production now because the SPR, as you said, we still have a lot there. We have over 400 million barrels. That's a lot of barrels. And uh, we're going to use them if we need to. But we want the industry to increase production right now so that th their barrels, the private sector barrels, can come into the market. That's not necessarily the role of the SPR. So, so we're building this timeline. But the price doesn't have to go down. By telling the industry we're going to buy it at $70 or so, that means that they're guaranteed that their investments will be still profitable no matter what. So we're putting that floor on that price for them to invest today. Except that you guys have done nothing but demonize the industry. And promised to destroy the industry. Remember Joe Biden, when he was running for president, I promise you I will end fossil fuels. I promise you that. Oh, well, no, no, no. Now I promise you that I won't. Well, I don't believe you, Joe. You seem like you're pretty hell-bent on destroying us. No, we promise you we will sell it, buy it from you for seven. So invest. Invest hundreds of millions, billions of dollars to increase, not, you know, you'll be sued by environmental groups the government regulators aren't going anywhere we're not going to open up any new drilling places we just want you to get more more out of the holes you already have drilled do that go ahead and do that work that magic and we pinky swear that we'll buy it from you at 70 dollars 
a barrel. Yeah. Government never goes back on any of their deals, ever. Just ask the uh, Indians here. So you got nothing to lose, right? But it was something hidden in there, aside from the economic illiteracy. Because, again, if the government starts becoming a buyer rather than a seller, the price spikes. And then there's the government promising, as the price will spike, because they've gone from seller to buyer, that they will buy cheaper, which is stupid. In there was another bit of ignorance of how things work and uh, a real threat to national security. Listen to this isolation on Amos Hochstein about they're ready to tap the strategic petroleum. It didn't work last time. It didn't really work. But we're gonna we're ready to do it more. We still got a lot of oil in there. We'll we'll drain that sucker dry, or at least promise to, if you'll vote for Democrats. That's the subtext. We still have a lot there. We have over four hundred million barrels. That's a lot of barrels, and uh, we're gonna use them if we need to. And we're gonna use them if we need to. It just depends. We've still got three weeks almost till the election. The polls will decide whether or not we need to. This is your government, ladies and gentlemen. When you go and fill up at the pump, it's it's because they're wildly ignorant about what they're, they're messing with. It. They're messing with something they don't understand. It'd be so much better if they just left it alone. But they're messing with something they don't understand. And to the extent that they know anything about the industry, they hate it. How do you expect people like that to make anything better? They can't. They won't. Now I want to shift to our current idiot president of the United States. He, uh, God, I don't even know where he comes. He's been out there trying to find ways to excite Democrat voters. In a time when we've got massive inflation, people can't afford to fill their cars, people can't afford to fill their grocery carts, fill their refrigerator, feed their family, etc., etc. You know all of that. We've talked about it. Joe Biden is focused like a laser on what is on, uh, as they say, top of mind of everybody out there. Abortion. Abor- now, he's sitting there going, who the hell is obsessed with abortion like this? If you look at any of the polls, abortion is a 5% issue in the New York Times poll. 5% of the people go, this is the most important thing in the world to me. Those That's of all the population. So that's people who are pro-abortion and people who are pro-life. Those people have already made up their mind. Whichever side of the issue they fall on, they know how they're going to vote, and they're going to vote accordingly. This is the issue that moves their vote. So there's no convincing them. So Democrats have hitched their electoral success on is motivating those people, that 5%, to actually show up. We're going to get them to show up. So we're going to pander to them to get them to show up. They think that they can win just by turning out people. They think that they can discourage enough Republicans from showing up. And like, there's no difference. Republicans are blah, blah, blah. And then get Democrats scared to death, say, we will never be able to have another abortion again unless you get out there and vote. So at a time when we have record inflation, the president had an event saying that he would codify Roe. Now, this is his number one priority, by the way. He told the audience. After the election, Democrat, vote Democrats, keep Democrats in control of the House and the Senate. And his first act as uh, the new Congress comes in will be to send up a bill to the House and Senate to the Hill codifying Roe into law. 
And the crowd went wild because there are a bunch of union goons in there. But whatever. The question should have been asked, hey, Joe, you're currently president of the United States. The Democrats currently control the Congress of the United States. Why don't you send that bill up now? If this is so damned important, if this is your number one priority, your top concern, why don't you send that bill up now? What's stopping you from sending that bill up now? Well, <laughs> what's stopping him is he needs that issue to motivate Democrats to show up to vote. That's what's stopping him. He doesn't really give a damn about this issue. It is a tool. Period. End of story. Joe Biden isn't unique in this, in his cynicism. That's how politicians work. But he doesn't really give a crap about this. He's not sitting there going, I'm waking up in the morning, uh, in the middle of the night, screaming, oh, that people don't have abortion on demand. And Jill having to calm him down and reassure him, don't worry, don't worry, we'll get you back. No. It actually would be easier for the House to pass this, something like codifying Roe into law now. The Senate... At 50-50, well, you have to deal with the filibuster. You'll still have to deal with the filibuster at 51 unless, of course, you're willing to get rid of the filibuster. Is that what he's saying? Is he going to blow up Senate precedent so people can have abortions? Is that what he... No, they won't. He, they doesn't want that. He'll do the issue next time. That's what he cares about. But at this event for abortion. He went, I want to play this first clip. You're like This is the what the F moment for Joe Biden. It, it seems like every time this guy does any kind of public event, there's a WTF moment where you're like, what in the hell is he talking about? This is that moment in this speech. It's a very short clip, and he seems confused. And if you notice, when he seems confused, he has no energy. He's very slow energy. When he's up there and he's going really excited, he seems to know what he's doing. He seems the meds have kicked in. But when it comes to when he screws up, it's low energy. And then you get something like this where you're going, what in the hell was that? The right that I pushed hard and it finally got changed, the married couples in the privacy of their bedroom, excuse me, the mar I'm thinking about the Dobbs, the Dobbs decision. Imagine, well, I'll get to that in a second. What the hell is he talking about? The overturning of Roe v. Wade was the Dobbs decision. That was the point of the whole freaking rally that he was attending. I think he was starting to try to talk about gay marriage, maybe. But a, what a married couple does in the privacy of their own home, he might have been talking about contraception. He might have been talking about any number of things. He might have been talking about a, an episode of Sex in the City or Murder, she wrote, that he watched over the weekend while off at one of his mansions in Delaware. No idea. Could be that Jill, that's what Jill whispers into his ear while he sleeps. Who the hell knows? He sure doesn't. And it was that kind of day for Joe. The kind of day where if you had to do it over again and you were a staffer for Biden, you'd say, let's cancel the event. He He's not with It's a bad day for Joe. But I want to play you this about how it ended. Because it's not often that a politician does the right thing and apologizes for being so horrible. He's not apologizing for being horrible. But he really, you could take this as him apologizing for the event, for his speech, for whatever. And you probably should if you were there, you're like, or you watched it, you're sitting there going, what the hell, why, why, why? 
Not a typical way to end a speech. Let's put it that way. We are. We are the United States of America, and there's nothing beyond our capacity. So vote, vote, vote. God bless you all, and may God protect our troops. Thank you. I'm sorry. (laughs) Thank you. I'm sorry. Thank you. I'm sorry, said every virgin ever after losing their virginity. Thank you. I'm sorry. No, no, no. That's in poor taste. But what the hell is he talking? Thank you. I'm sorry. And it wasn't as though they turned the microphone off, although you could envision a scenario where somebody's job at the somebody in the White House staff is like their job is to follow along. Well, you imagine Ron Klain sitting there going, "Here's what you do. Here's the script for the President of the United States. You follow. See this last word where he says thank you right at the end. At that moment, I don't care if he's in the middle. You follow along and you get to that last sentence, that last word, that period, and you do it before he even finishes the you at the end of you." Thank you. And boom, you turn the microphone off. You turn the microphone off. That's it. Cut the mic. Because there's a possibility that he'll say something else. (laughs) That's not what happened, though. Because normally when you're talking to a microphone and then the microphone gets turned off or the microphone goes up, people will go, oh, oh," their lips will keep moving. First of all, they'll continue to talk. And then at some point they'll go, the microphone isn't working, and they'll look at the microphone. Like, is the light still on? Did I hit the switch? Whatever it is, it's that unit. There's nothing. It's never the microphone. But people always look at the microphone like, what's going on? No, somebody at the control board with the switches turned you off. That's just how it is. There was none of that. Thank you. I'm sorry. And then he puts the microphone down. He was done. He said, I'm sorry intentionally for what we don't know. Maybe he just broke wind. There's a good po- there was a bunch of people on stage, so there's a possibility that he broke some wind and he was apologizing to them. You know how some people are. And by the way, at the end of this event, there were some people up on stage. They were, of course, hand-picked union associates. It's, it's amazing to me how Joe Biden cannot attract an audience of normal people. You just watch a Joe Biden. They all have the union-provided signs behind them and the union-provided T-shirts on. And you're like, huh. You can't just go, the president's going to be here tomorrow, show up and expect people to show up and get people to show up. You've got to have like union people whose job it is to show up at, at rallies. Donald Trump doesn't pay people to show up at his rallies. Republican, Carrie Lake out in Arizona has massive rallies running for governor. She's not paying people to show up. They don't have to wear costumes like, all right, we're going to get you the day off of work. You're going to go to this Biden event, but you've got to wear the IBEW uh, T-shirt behind there so everybody knows you've got to represent. Okay. That's the only people who will show up to these things. It's the only people who want to be there. But anyway, afterwards, he's standing there talking to a couple of people on stage. Don't hear what's going on because the music is playing. And there's a little girl up front. I don't know. She's maybe 12, something like that. And he does this weird thing again that he does with women. He's never done this with a man. I've never seen Joe Biden, like, sniff a boy. I've never seen Joe Biden put his hands on a boy and, like, rub the face of a boy and, like, pet a boy and caress a boy. He knows what a woman is, even though he'll tell you a woman can be anything. He knows what a woman is. They're the the ones he, he caresses. Bill Clinton knows what a woman is. Bill Clinton never said, well, I, uh, I had an affair, but apparently turned out that intern was a dude. Yeah, Democrats used to know what a woman was. Now they, they're all confused. What's going on? 
He wouldn't let go of this girl's hand. He held it for like 30 solid seconds. She got a concerned look on her face like, why won't you let go of my hand? And he's shaking hands with everybody, greeting everybody. And he's holding this little girl's hand like in a creepy kind of way after rubbing her face. It's like, I want to know where the parents are. At some point, look, if you shake my kid's hand or whatever, pat my kid on the head when you meet, that's fine. That's normal. If you don't let go or you grab my kid or you smell my kid, at some point I'm going to go, get your, get your damn hands off my kid. What the hell's wrong with you? Where are the parents of these kids that Joe Biden is sniffing like they're freshly baked bread? Something's going on here. There's something wrong with this guy. Now we go from our idiot president to our idiot vice president. The Kamala Harris word salad of the day. <laughs> I swear to God. It is amazing watching these people work, watching these people function or try to function. She, um, she's asked about the environment. I don't know what event this was in Washington, D.C., but it's some left-wing event in Washington, D.C. That's the only thing she'd show up for. And she's asked about what they've done for the environment. She makes up a word. I, maybe, maybe it isn't a word. Unintentionality? I've never heard the word unintentionality, but then again, what the hell do I know? But listen to her talk. This is something to behold in and of itself. What are some of the climate actions that the administration has taken that folks may not know so much about? Well, a lot of it has to do with a, a real intentionality that we have uh, to reshift industries. Reshift re industry intentionality. Wouldn't it be the intention? Wouldn't it say we have an intention to reshift industries? And then shouldn't the next question be, uh, excuse me, Comrade Stalin, what do you mean reshift industries? What gives you the authority to reshift industries? I ask you again, what gives you the authority to reshift industries? And what gives you the the intentionality? That that sounds like a word like uh, irregardless. I bet intentionality is now up there. It's just something that dumb people had said repeatedly. And so the dictionary people said, well, we're never going to get rid of this word. Let's just go ahead and put it in the dictionary. Because irregardless is not a word, except now irregardless is a word. It's not a word. Irregardless of what you say. You mean regardless? Regardless and irregardless would technically mean the exact same thing if irregardless were a real word, which would negate the necessity for irregardless, because regardless has it covered. <laughs> regardless is a shorter word. It also makes you sound less stupid. Anyway... She then goes on to talk about government spending money. Basically, uh, you know, you can you can adopt a starving kid somewhere in the world. Uh, the, the government wants to adopt starving scientists or something. And um, do that in a way that we are emphasizing the importance of U.S. investment in U.S.-based R&D, research and development. Uh, the, the president and I both care deeply about the importance of investing in, in, in scientists and engineers and, and that research. <laughs> um, many of you may know my mother was a scientist. <laughs> Why is she laughing? What are the, oh, science. 
It's just a buzzword. The Democrats are like a group of seals. Uh, hey, I'll throw a mackerel at you if you play. Oh, 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 please give me, please give me, please give me. My God. <laughs> we love, my mother was a scientist. We love science. We got to do this. We got to do that. We got to spend more on science. How about we just get better at science? How about that? You know, you're not really churning out all that many scientists when, say, a city like Baltimore has, right in the mid-range of the students, having a .13 GPA. You know, you're not you're not churning out a whole bunch of future scientists there. Hate to break it to you. Hate to break it to you, but that's just the way of the world. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I saw this the other day and I couldn't believe it was real. And uh, as we wrap it up here, it is real. It's all too real. Dave Weigel, who used to write for the Washington Post, got suspended for tweeting a joke. He's now at something called Semaphore. I don't know what the hell that is. But uh, they hired a whole bunch of people, a bunch of leftists like, oh, you know what the world needs is a new left-wing news outlet. Oh, all right, well, let's do it. Uh, he tweeted out yesterday, one of my questions for John Fetterman, when does someone convicted of first-degree murder deserve clemency? Because John Fetterman is running for Senate from Pennsylvania. He's lieutenant governor. His goal is to let out a third of people, including people guilty of second-degree murder. Uh, he wants them out. He wants to get rid of life without parole. He wants to do away with the death penalty, and he wants to do away with life without parole. And at some point, you go... Shouldn't somebody, I don't know, be punished? Isn't it punishment? Well, Frankenstein answered this way, quote, It's really a very simple choice. I believe the perfect metaphor is the Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> That's a touchstone that virtually everybody has seen, everybody understands. I've asked people, would you want Morgan Freeman to die in prison or not? And I've never met anybody that says, yeah, he should die in prison. I would have voted to have him die in prison. Well, I have never met Frankenstein Fetterman, but I personally would I responded and said I would say he should die in prison because he was a murderer. That's the thing. Now, in the movie, they didn't go into what it was that Red did to deserve to be. Remember, he was the only guilty man in Shawshank, the only one who admitted it. Well, what did he do? Well, as Chuck Ross over at the uh, Washington Free Beacon put it, quote, Fetterman keeps using this line, but maybe he doesn't know what Red was serving time for. I knew it was murder, but I didn't know what Red had actually done because I didn't, I wouldn't, I didn't read the short story it was based on. It said in Stephen King, in the Stephen King book, Red cut the brake line on his wife's car for insurance money. She had a neighbor and her infant daughter in the car when they crashed and died. So yeah, uh, Red does deserve to die in prison, did deserve to die in prison. That's why he was there, that he'd come to terms with it and that he hadn't gone on a cell block C or whatever the hell it is, murder spree whilst in prison is kind of irrelevant to the story. A sociopath killed his wife and his neighbor and their kid. He did the wife and or the neighbor and the, the kid by accident, but he killed his wife for insurance money. That's not a, well, you know, it was just tough times and we all do crazy things when times are, everybody's been a little late on the phone bill and thought, how am I, how is it that I'm able to, uh, 
pay these bills. I need to come up with a way. I've got it. I'll kill my neighbor. I'll kill my wife. Or I'll kill my husband. That will do it. That will help me pay my bills. And then you know, just a few years later go, gee, I probably shouldn't have murdered my uh, that person for, to be able to pay my bills. Does then the prison doors open like magically, like like you've apologized, you've said the magic word, like a kid. Can I have a, give me a cookie, give me a cookie, give me a cookie. No, 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 no. What's the magic word? Please. Oh, all right. Now you can have a cookie. If you're sitting there going, I probably shouldn't have killed my wife over that insurance money. Then suddenly the doors of Shawshank should open. In John Fetterman's America, in the Democrats' America, that is the case. This is the perfect, it's a, first of all, Fetterman, your example, is a fictional character. Okay. But secondly, it's putting that aside because I think most of your life is fiction, like the, the love in your marriage. But uh, you put that aside, uh, he did kill somebody. Maybe you should consider that. I don't know. You want him to live with you? I don't think you do. Anyway, of course, Red would rather stay in prison than live with Frankenstein. We're out of time for today. That's enough of this. Have yourself a wonderful day. We'll be back to do it all again tomorrow. Appreciate you listening. See you then.